Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Each program, we choose a book that's especially interesting, and we ask the author of that book to come and chat with us about the book. This week, we have author Lori Silvers about her new book, A Soaring Minaret, Abu Bakr al-Wasati and the Rise of Baghdadi Sufism. The early history of Islamic mysticism is fairly well known. However, there are only a few key figures that have been explored in, in great detail, and their activities shape how we understand this early history of Sufism. Laurie Silvers, professor of religion at the University of Toronto, makes a significant contribution to our understanding of the early development of Sufism by focusing on an influential but lesser-known figure, Abu Bakr al-Wasati, the Soaring Minaret. In her new book, A Soaring Minaret, Abu Bakr al-Wasati and the Rise of Baghdadi Sufism, she situates Wasati and his contributions within the broader historical developments during the formative period of Sufism. By doing so, she deepens our knowledge of the development and spread of Baghdadi mystical thought and practice. Silver's approach is refreshing and useful as she details the historical context as well as the intellectual history of early mystics. Wasati was one of the first students of the influential teachers Junaid and Nuri, the first to travel east and promote the Baghdadi Sufi tradition in Khorasan, and one of the first mystics to compose a tafsir of the Quran. We are also presented with a detailed analysis of Wasati's theological perspective on the divine reality. Silvers thoroughly outlines Wasati's understanding of God's essence, his attributes, and his acts in a reliable and accessible manner. Overall, Silvers offers us a comprehensive and comprehensible presentation of the intellectual development of Islamic mysticism and metaphysics within the context of the historical development and spread of Sufism. This new book is highly enjoyable and should be useful for both the lay reader and the academic. Without further ado, here's the interview. Today I have the pleasure of talking with Lori Silvers about her new book, A Soaring Minaret, Abu Bakr al-Wasati and the Rise of Baghdadi Sufism, an excellent book which... uh, Details the, the life and thought of this very unique figure within the, the formative period of, uh, of Sufism. So thank you for joining us, Lori. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. I really appreciate you talking with us. Your, your book was wonderful. Thank you very much. and Thank you for having me. Uh, before we get into the, the content of the book, maybe you could take a few minutes and just kind of tell us about uh, your training how your interest rose in Islam and religious studies, uh, if you had any influential mentors, things like that. Okay. Well, um, well, you know, like you, I was an undergraduate at SUNY Stony Brook. Um, but uh, at the time, I was actually doing a major in English. And my ultimate goal was to probably become a high school English teacher. I didn't know where that was going to go, but that was that was what I was I was I was thinking at the time. And I had, and I had just been accepted into the PhD program in English there. Uh, but but really, I was just thinking about about being a, a high school teacher at the time. Um, 
But in order to graduate, so this is my senior year, in order to graduate, I had to take a course on the study of another culture. And so uh, I ended up taking uh, William Chittick's course on uh, Meister Eckhart and Ibn al-Arabi. And I absolutely fell in love. I, I just, I fell in love with thinking about Ibn al-Arabi's ideas. I just didn't, all I wanted to do was just think those ideas all day long and <laughs> nothing else. I mean, I just... I found I found my thing. Nothing I had done before that was terribly thrilling to me. I enjoyed English literature and all that, and I really enjoyed teaching, you know, but nothing really, really had clicked with me. And this was the thing uh, that that really that really clicked. And so when I when I expressed uh, some some interest in studying the subject further, you know, but warily, though, you know, because I wasn't sure I was, you know, I was capable of it. Right. So I expressed this kind of warily to him. He was very supportive, actually. And he helped me apply to uh, to the program there in order to study with him and Professor Murata. And uh, it was fairly easy to do. My acceptance from the English department was switched over to comparative studies. And uh, and I began a PhD uh, in you know basically Islamic studies with Professor Chittick and Murata through the comparative studies program there. Uh, but it was interesting because I had no background in the study of religion whatsoever. That was my very first course I had ever taken on religion. Uh, I had no language skills. I was very, very good with Spanish, you know, but that really wasn't going to do a heck of a lot for, you know, reading classical Islamic texts. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't working in the area where Spanish would, would, where Spanish would help. I wasn't, I wasn't interested so much in that. Um, I didn't have any Persian, nothing. I knew nothing about Islam. I knew, I knew nothing about Islam. That's all I can say is that I knew absolutely nothing. Right. So I was really starting from scratch uh, and, and, and just jumping right into the deep end, because what were we doing? We were doing these very close readings of, uh, of Sufi texts. You know, we were reading, we were reading, uh, you know, anything you could imagine from the for Ibn al-Arabi school and Ibn al-Arabi itself, and just sitting in a class where it would just be three or four of us, and we would be reading, you know, just maybe a, a paragraph, a paragraph of a, of a primary source, you know, a paragraph of it, and going so slowly through this material, uh, you know, when, when ultimately uh, my Arabic was 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 up to par you know we'd be we'd be sitting there going through it line by line and and professor chittick would just hammer and hammer and hammer away until i was able to talk about how a particular word was being used in a particular in the context of that particular sentence not just in the context of that section or of that text itself or of that at, you know, of, of uh, that kind of material within its own period. No, no, no. And we had to really look very closely at the sources, you uh, know, in, in a way that that was absolutely. Oh, what can I say? It was the it was it was a fine education. And I feel I feel extremely lucky, lucky to have had that um, when my uh, when my uh, husband at the time was accepted into Yale to study uh, with Professor Boomerang in Islamic studies there, uh, we moved to New Haven. And that actually helped me out in another way because Bulvering is, he's just the loveliest person and he was kind enough to uh, let me sit in and uh, learn a bit from him. And he was, he was kind enough to read some of what I was writing and to comment on that. And I was also able to 
learn a bit from the courses that my ex was taking. Like he was taking a course on an introductory, uh, an introduction to biographical literature. And so I was able to sort of look at that syllabus and, and then go follow some of those things up in the library and learn a bit about that. So I got a lot of background uh, that I wouldn't have gotten otherwise, uh, you know, through, through that experience in, in New Haven and, and Professor Bovering was just uh, really, really generous in, in his guidance. I mean, I was so lucky to, to have, Professors Chittick and Murata and work so closely with Chittick and then to be able to to move on and and have Professor Bovern be so generous with me. It was it, I was I was quite lucky. I also had an amazing professor at Stony Brook, uh, 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 Dr. Robert Goldenberg, who is a rabbinic studies teacher. And he was, uh, you know, he was one of the people who really introduced me to uh, religious studies theory, theory and method, and particularly uh, the the idea of orality and uh, and 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 a lot of uh, post structural, uh, post structural material there. And Stony Brook also too was a was a important an, an important place. I think it still is, and, and it, the philosophy department there is well known for for its. Uh, for continental philosophy. And so, you know, we had a lot of access. We took a lot of classes that came out of the philosophy department with, uh, with a lot of, uh, continental philosophy. So reading Derrida and Foucault and things like this. And so I had, I had some, some really solid background and I mean, it was just sort of a lot to build from a lot to really build from. And, uh, I, I still had no idea what I was going to write my dissertation on, but, uh, Wolverine one day was talking with his graduate students about, uh, about different dissertation topics, and and he mentioned uh, uh, somebody that somebody needs to work on Wasati, and my and my ex uh, told me this when when he came home one day, and I was like, oh gosh, I want to do that. That's what I want to do, and so it ended up being the case that I was able to to work on that. And Bovering was very sweet and helped me to uh, to find you know the proper manuscript to use. So I was I was looking at um uh Sulemi's, uh glosses on the Quran where he has Sulemi's collection of of early Sufi glosses on the on the Quran so I had a manuscript of that that I was able to use and so I called uh Wasati's sayings from that which is quite a lot I mean it turned out to be about 90 pages of of typed Arabic uh, so there's quite a lot there for me to work from so it's an incredibly rich source and I and I started you know, studying the, the, the history of, of, of Sufism in the early period. I really, you know, I really started getting into that in a way that, that I had not before. So the dissertation was an education in itself. It was, it was an extraordinary experience. And so the book obviously comes from that experience, but you can tell, uh, you know, I've looked at your dissertation as well. You can tell that they're different projects or, you know, definitely different texts. Um, Yeah. Yeah. How did you come to kind of shape the book the way it became? Well, I knew I wasn't, I knew that I didn't know enough. How do I put it? I didn't, I didn't know enough about history. I didn't, I didn't, although I felt extremely comfortable with reading, uh, with reading these, you know, reading these theoretical Sufi sources, I felt very comfortable with that. I, I really knew that I was still learning so much about, about the history of the early period and the, the, the social context and even the broader theological context. These were things that, that I just didn't have enough background in. And I, and I knew I had to continue studying that. I didn't want to publish the book and I could have published the book at the time, but I, I, I didn't, I didn't want to publish the dissertation as a book until I felt like I had 
mastered enough of the material that I could speak uh, comfortably about the about the period. And so, um, you know, I had joined the American Academy of Religion, and I was and I was presenting papers there. And you know, the people, as as you know, everybody in the Islam group is just wonderful. I, the, the the intellectual generosity of that group is is something I, I think is unheard of in the AR. When I speak to people who are friends of mine who are in other who are in other areas, they're they're shocked at the degree of generosity that everybody has for one another and how supportive it is and how collaborative it is. Uh, whereas you know for a lot of them and in some cases you know there's 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 a you know there's quite there's so much competition that uh, that people aren't quite as generous as maybe as maybe they could be. So I was giving these papers and these wonderful, wonderful professors, you know, the, 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 these wonderful scholars, the best people in the field are responding to my paper and suggesting, look, you could look this up here. You could do that there. Or, you know, I mean, I remember, you know, Vincent Cornell at one point, he picked, he picked uh, a particular issue out of a paper I was giving on, on, on Wasity. And he said, look, you know, you, you're bringing this idea through here, but I think that that's the focus. That's really what you're looking at. And you need to pull that idea out because that's what's really going on. And he was a hundred percent correct. And it ended up being uh, being a large part of how I was coming at the material uh, in the final version of of the book. So I was getting that I was getting that kind of of support from from my colleagues uh, and everybody was everybody was just terrific. And then you go see all these papers and everybody's doing wonderful work and everybody was sharing uh, sharing what they knew. So so I felt like I was getting a, a, a good education there then through through the AR and, and ultimately got to a place where I felt comfortable enough to start. Uh, rewriting the dissertation uh, as as a book, and and then this is you know what I what I have is is what's there. Also, too, I, I should say too when I when I rewrote it, I rewrote it. I thought about well, who do I want the audience to be? You know, because the, when you have to write a book proposal, they do ask you that question, so you do need to have an answer. And and I and I felt that I really wanted it to be used in the classroom. I I do love teaching. I teaching is. Teaching is a, is, a, is a primary love in my life, and, and I wanted the material that I was working on to be accessible. I wanted it to be accessible. Obviously, I, I hope that it will be a contribution to my, for, my, for my colleagues, but at the same time, I also wanted it to be a contribution in the classroom. So when I was putting the book together, I thought, well, if I were teaching, you know, and I did, teaching an introduction to Sufism class, what would I, you know, what book would I want to have to cover the, you know, the early period? And so I, so I wrote the book I would have wanted to have to cover the early period. Uh, so, so I, I did that. Uh, and, you know, and hopefully, hopefully it it is being used in classrooms. I've gotten some, some emails from people saying that they, that they are using it in classrooms and, uh, and, uh, gotten some really good, uh, got some sense that it, that it is going in that direction. So I feel, I feel very, very happy about that. Yeah, it's definitely the way you framed it between the kind of the historical portion and then more of a theological portion, I think is going to be very useful for, for people in religious studies. And I, and it's, and it's short, you know, I mean, what, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, publishers do, you know, these days want your books to be short as well. Right. So, but, but nevertheless, I mean, you know, you, if you know how it is, if you're teaching a class and you've got a 300 page book, you, you cannot teach the whole of that book if you're going to, 
uh, if you if you want the students to to read it closely and carefully, I mean, you can you know, or if you can only just pull a couple of sections out of it, if you if you want to do close reading. So because of my training, I tend to focus more on uh, on uh, uh, shorter shorter readings with with deeper deeper content. Anyway, so so I tried to make it accessible that way. So of course, there's a you know that you have to you have to sort of make kind of more general statements when you're writing something shorter you're making more general statements but hopefully with the footnotes and and these things you you indicating uh indicating uh deeper discussions and where one can go where one can go for that yeah i think you're very successful yay thank you (laughs) um so uh tell us tell us about vasati who who was he and why why choose him why is he important well, he, you know, he's a really, he's a really interesting character. So I, I think the reason why I was really fascinated with him is, you know, when, 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 uh, uh, Bovring, you know, made this, made this suggestion, uh, Wasity is really difficult to read. His sayings were even difficult for the people at the time. Uh, when you look at the, at, uh, at the Sufi manuals and treatises where, Wasati is being quoted. Uh, the people, you know, you know, Kusheri and Saraj, people like this, they're 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 always having to explain what Wasati means by something. You know, I mean, and other people, you know, they're just saying so-and-so said this about fear or about hope or about whatever. And you know, with Wasati, they're always having to explain what he means by something. I mean, so it was difficult even for them uh, to get it. And Saraj talks about how uh, misunderstood uh, Wasati could be, and and actually the the real trouble. Uh, that that caused, you know, that 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 sort of thing could cause for for Sufis at the time when there would be misunderstandings uh, between the Sufis and people of of, of other orientations uh, at that at that period of time. Uh, but he was just so difficult to read, and so that was kind of a challenge and wonderful. But he's, I really enjoyed, uh, I really enjoyed his thought and the complexity, the theory, the, the fact that there was such deep theoretical work, theoretical Sufism going on in the early period, uh, and that for me, this theoretical material was so was so uh, deeply enmeshed in 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 the practicality of the Sufi path as they were as as they were expressing it. And I felt and, and Sawasati just uh uh just was so attractive in that regard. And also too because he's you know he's he has an extraordinary way of saying things. He was very, uh, you know, I mean, I, I tend to say, you know, okay, he was he was earnest in the way that he said things. He was very uh uh he was very forward in telling people if he thought that they were wrong in the way that they were thinking about God. Um, let, me, let me see if I can if I can talk about him this way. You know, I mean, in the, so in the early period, there's a there's a real emphasis on on God's rights and uh, God's com- complete command over all things. So there's this real emphasis on God's transcendence, and and Sufis from this time do tend to articulate. Um, even experiences of of imminence with this inflection of transcendence okay but but this was more than an inflection in the way that Wasati talked about God. He stressed god 's transcendence to this in uh, really really an uncomfortable level you know i mean so so atar has this uh you know is, is talking about about wasati and he has this and he has a bit of literary flourish let's say uh going on when he says that that wasati was stoned out of every town he traveled to until he until he ended up in, in marv where he where he settled ultimately you know so you know of course not but nevertheless you know 
given what I know about Wasity Sings, given what can be known, you know, I really wouldn't be surprised if he'd been run out of town here and there. You know, after all, when, when, look, when somebody asked him, somebody, <laughs> this is great. Somebody, somebody asked him whether or not one's good, good deeds will count on the last day. You know, in essence, Wasity replies that, that God creates one's bad deeds and then he punishes you for them. You know, this is this is really really wonderful. That's just that's just so wasity, and so you can see why 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 he was an unpopular sheikh, right? So uh, he was, you know, he was he had this extraordinary way of saying things that he was just gonna he was just gonna bring he was gonna bring the truth home, right? So so sometimes I imagined him kind of like one of those fellows on the street corner with a sign saying, you know, the end is nigh, you know. And he was like that. He was a person who who had no difficulty uh, telling people straight up and mincing no words uh, if he felt that they were uh, not giving the proper attention to to God's ultimate transcendent oneness. Uh, and he could be very, very, very serious about that. Um, you know, if he disagreed with somebody's perspective on God, he, he would let that person know with great clarity. Um, but that picture of him in that in that sort of extreme sense only works if we round it out too with this incredible intellect he had, right? Because we have these wonderful theoretical sayings on, uh, you know, on 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 God that are that are made up with these glosses, these glosses on the Quran. Uh, so you have this very you know lucid account of of what is just a subtle theological vision. Of, of God that he's giving in the context of a Quran commentary. Uh, and so, you know, you can't, so if, if I'm going to have him standing on the street corner, we also have to, we also have to round that picture out with this, with this, with this other side of him as well. And also the fact that he was also what we can tell from, from some of the other sayings that he has, that he was very tender with his students and he did have a real concern for them as well. His sayings show that he was, you know, he counseled, he, he counseled people, uh, appropriate to their levels at various stages on the path. You know, he, he guided his students with care. We have sayings where showing this real tenderness towards his students and, and giving very straightforward explanations of, of verses in the Quran. I mean, not, not everything was, uh, you know, was, was pow for, for him. He was, he was a, a rounded person, but a, but a person who, uh, who had great clarity about, about Tawheed, about God's oneness and, uh, and no difficulty, uh, expressing that i mean he was he was certainly a charismatic figure yeah and the the first section of the book you definitely get that that picture uh you do a very good job of that and showing his importance obviously he was he was significant for other reasons he was one of the first students of junaid you know one of the first uh yeah sufi commentators on the quran uh one of the first baghdadi sufis to go to Khorasan. so uh it's interesting too I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just saying, very significant. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's wonderful about the study of Sufism right now is that, you know, is that somebody like Wasati, who is clearly, you know, an important figure, he's not... He's, he's, you know, he's not Junaid, right? But he's, he's a, he's a very important figure and yet, you know, really relatively unstudied. So there, there had, there was a, a, a you know, Graham had done, had done, uh, had done some, some work on him, but, but really on the, on the whole, relatively unstudied, right? So we have, we have quite a lot to do left in Sufism. So it's, it's exciting that there are all these wonderful figures out there that, that are, that are, that are left to, left for us to work on. Um, 
but uh yeah he was he was this this important person uh he you know he's he's one of Junaid's first students you can see you can see Junaid's thought in his own work it would be wonderful at some point if it'd be possible to do a comparative analysis from there to be able to sort of see you know see uh what he was getting from him and how and, and how those things were working together. Um, and then his own, you know, traveling to, to Khorasan and really bringing this Baghdadi uh, tradition that was so tied up in the Ahl Hadith movement in, in, in Baghdad, uh, you know, this, 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 uh, this movement where, you know, everything, everything has to go back to, to Quran and Hadith and really sort of stressing, stressing that, uh, that traditional, that traditional focus over, over one that was stressing one relying more on, on independent reasoning at the, at the, at the outset, um, that he was bringing that kind of traditional focus of, uh, on, on experiences of God to, to Horasan and introducing that to Horasan. You know, I'm sure other people were there as well, but, you know, but he's one of the first people doing that, uh, and, and really sort of bringing, bringing that there, which would eventually, uh, which would eventually really change the face of Sufism because it is the Horasani Sufis, you know, who ultimately these, the, the, the mystics of Horasan will ultimately take on Sufism as their own and transform it in such a way and, and bring that back West and, and transform Sufism, uh, uh, into the, you know, transform Sufism in, in the way that we sort of perceive it now as a Sufism with, with, with orders and a Sufism that's focused on love and, uh, a Sufism that perceives imminence in a, in a, in a way that's, that's different. You know, I mean, it's the Khorasani's really played a very large part in how, in how that develops. There's lots of other reasons too, but you know, we're, we're just doing a little interview here, right? What can I say? Right. Let's, um, let's shift to, uh, Wasati's theology. Um, before we kind of get into some of the details, um, this, this idea of God's rights plays a very significant role, uh, in all the sections that you, you write. Um, could you kind of, flesh that idea out this idea of god's rights well you know i mean in the in in the early period there was you know that people were disputing about 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 god quite a lot right and whether whether or not god had complete control over things or whether or not a, a person's works mattered a bit and so uh you know i mean the 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 stress on a person's works mattering, even if people did not find themselves to, to this is, this is coming out of, out of Qadrism and Maltazlism. And, and even if the early pious, pious people who were you know influenced by that, even if they weren't taking up a, a complete perspective, like the Maltazlis and the Qadris did, nevertheless, their, their thinking was, was touched by that. Their experience of God was touched by that to the degree that they, they would talk in terms that their that their works would matter that they would in fact be that the way that they worshiped god mattered uh in where they were going to end up on the last day that if they fasted and fasted or or if they prayed and prayed or whatever they did that this would matter in how god interacts with them uh but for the but for the early ahladith movement which is you know the early piety around baghdad in these in these areas and uh and early sufism People really thought that their works didn't matter. Uh, there was a there was a a way of talking about how one's works did matter, but really ultimately, people were stressing that God had complete control over all things. And you know, and and one one uh, one uh, early early uh, uh, pious woman says, you know that that you know she's that God could just as easily throw her into hell as to as to 
place her in paradise. You know, this is something that is entirely in, in, in God's hands. And so there tends to be that stress in the, in the early period. And, and, you know, and Wasati is right there, you know, that's, he's, he's, he's part of, he's part of that mode of thinking. And so whenever he's talking about God, he, he really tends to stress this idea of God's rights over, over all of God's creation. Uh, and and stressing that first and foremost. So even when he talks about about imminence, he's talking about imminence. Even when he does talk about human agency, it's in a way that that it stresses God's God's rights over a person. Maybe right. you could describe uh, Wasati's uh, the way he he uh, portrays God's essence more generally. Well, I mean, everything you know. I mean, typically too, when people talk about God's essence, right? I mean, it's 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 all discussion of no. Right, everything is is God is, is is not this and not that and not the other thing, and so there's this, you know, really there's this incredible stress on the on on the no that whatever you can say, it will it will take you nowhere, and uh, God is God's essence is completely overwhelming right which can't which can't even do justice to to the way that that people that people talk about the essence of god it's 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 completely beyond any 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 discussion whatsoever right so when when Wasati talks about god's god's attributes which is one of the places where you can one can start speaking positively about about the nature of the divine where you can start talking about how god interacts with the world uh, with, with the world between, you know, how is God interacting with, with, with the creatures? At that point, you can make positive statements, but Wasati will always turn that back towards transcendence. So he'll always say, these are the names of the names of the names, you know, that, that any, any positive attribute we're giving here really, really isn't saying anything at all. Um, and, and of course, now everybody will say this, too, of course, you know, you, everybody, everybody will ultimately make that point because that's the proper theological point to make. But, you know, but Wasati gets a bit hard hitting on that, right? So it's, it's the, it's this, it's this really strong inflection he has towards transcendence that he, that he, that he puts, that he puts on all things. Wasati also talks about the pronoun hua and the letter ha pointing to the essence. Um, what exactly is he talking about? Even even when you're looking at the at, at something like this where you have this pronoun that should be a positive that a positive attribute, really it's just it's exploding all all attributes, right? That it that it moves it that it 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 moves beyond all things. And so when you say and this is interesting too, because you know how Sufis, you know, when they when they get together and do liquor, they'll they'll say things like who, you know, they'll say that that the the name he uh as as a vicar, and part of it is is that it um is that it's pointing it's pointing to the fact that there that that nothing positive can can be be said about about God um, because it's this indirect expression of of God's nature. It's it's an illusion. It's um, it's it's not something. It's like if you're talking about the names of the attributes, you can get caught up in that in that quality uh, that's being described. But he is is just this this powerful uh this this powerful statement that directs one away from equality and and back to god's and back to god's oneness can you uh can you discuss what what god's attributes are and how we come to know them okay well so so you know i mean in the early period right there's this there's this big discussion about what are God's attributes. People are, uh, you know, people are in, are in dispute about that because, you know, you've, you've got this issue. If you've got, 
you know, one God. And then, and then in the Quran, you know, that God is saying, Oh, you know, but I'm also, I'm also the knowing and I'm also, I, I can also see, uh, and having these, these, you know, these, these attributes that are, that are, are frankly anthropomorphic. So you've got, you've got these verses in the Quran saying, you know, God is unlike, you know, there's nothing like God and, and God is beyond all of this. But then at the same time, uh, using attributes that are, that, that can be connected to human experience, uh, like compassion and, uh, and mercy and wrath, uh, this, this sort of thing. So, so how do you manage, how do you manage those ideas? How do you have a God that is utterly one, uh, and, and a God that also is many, how do you, you know, how do you, how do you balance these things and, and bring them together? So there were, so people were arguing a, a lot about, about that, what that, about what that means. And the, and, you know, the Motazlis and, and, and people of that, of, of that ilk, um, what they tried to do was to, you know, was to, deny the attributes in such a way that that one talked about them that one could talk about them positively in any sense in the, in the sense that they didn't want to stress the attributes as being in any way separate uh separate from the essence of god um so they didn't want in, in they were very very much afraid uh, exactly kind of like what in a, in a way of what Wasidi is talking about here although he criticized the Montazlites to to the end of the world but uh in in a way that if you if you're over focusing if you're if you're focusing on the attribute on this positive attribute we can say something positive about god like we know that god is merciful it's a it's a it's we know that god is is uh gives life this sort of thing that it can tend to draw you away from from god's transcendence uh that there's this kind of uh, maybe there's a slippery slope that you'll you'll fall into seeing god as many uh rather than rather than as one uh and uh, for 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 Wasati and and for the Ahl Hadith, uh, they they balanced that in a different way, and, and maybe maybe the easiest way of of talking about it, or maybe not, we'll find out in a second, um, is seeing how they understood what the Quran was. That the Quran is was one and the same. God's expression is one and the same as God. That there is no distinction between God and God's expression. But nevertheless, you have this expression in the world as a Quran, bringing guidance. Right. So the so the expression of the Quran is an expression of God's guidance and the connection between between the creatures. So so they didn't, you know, the the Mutazlis and the you know and the and the the Qadris and people like this and of that of that ilk, they they weren't. They weren't saying so much of something very different from each other as, you know, as the, as the Ahl Hadith. It's just the stresses were different. So the, those people were sort of really trying to be very, you know, the Motaslis and all them were trying to be very careful in, in pushing all those attributes right up into the essence. And the Ahl Hadith were feeling much more comfortable uh, talking, talking about it as an expression of God's relationship with the world. And then they were very careful. I mean, from, from very early on, they're saying, look, when, when we have these, these statements about, uh, you know, God's hands or God's attributes in ways that are, uh, that, that, that are, uh, anthropomorphic. We just we have to affirm them because God says them in the Quran. But we again we won't ask how that may be true. Uh, that that happens very very early on. Uh, so so Wasit is really taking that Ahl Hadith position in that. And so when he's talking about the the attributes, he's talking about the way in which God interacts with with creation uh, in that sense. But always with the with the stress that these that these attributes are are none other than than one God.
Wasti also talks about the, the attributes as a veil. Can you describe that? Right. And I think this is, you know, I mean, I think this, this is a nice thing that, that points to those things that, that can be similar with, with the concerns of people in the early period, because one can caught, get caught up with the, with, with the attributes um, in such a way that, that one begins to think that the attributes are, are God in a way that they, that they are not, that one starts to, I mean, ferocity, one can become a polytheist in a way. Yeah, one can become a polytheist by overemphasizing the importance of the attributes, by focusing on God's mercy in such a way that one begins to, uh, to forget about the transcendence God, that, that this mercy is ultimately overwhelmed uh, by, by God's extraordinary overcoming of, of all those names, that God is beyond that name. So yes, we interact with God uh, as the merciful, but at the same time, we're not interacting with God at all. Uh, which for him is, uh, you know, is an important point to make in, in a sense that we don't, for, for Wasati, when you, when you are interacting with the names and you're talking about your relationship with God with respect to the names, you are automatically assuming that you exist. So affirming the names aside from the transcendence of God means that you're also affirming yourself as an independent agent. Because if we're going to talk about God as the creator, well, then we also have to talk about the created that God interacts with, right? So God is interacting with the created and the created are interacting with God. And that this can remove one from truly contemplating uh, uh, God's ownership, God's complete ownership, and, the, and, and that God wipes out uh, all of that with 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 God's ultimate transcendence, and so if people are overly focused on their on their own relationship with God, in this sense, uh, one can lose sight of this of this larger picture, which is ferocity that nothing exists but God. I mean, well, for you know, ultimately for 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 everybody, right? There is there is no reality but God's reality. There is nothing nothing real but God, and. Wasati would want to uh, would want to would want to stress that that even that when you are interacting with God's mercy that that should lead you to realize uh, that God's mercy is so overwhelming and so so encompassing and so completely a, a part of the transcendent God that you should in fact find yourself dissolving in that so so even in a, a, an experience. Well, I'll stop. I'll stop there. I might even move on to something else. Well, I mean, I'll continue the discussion in a second. Sure. Maybe you could talk about the acts. The final section. You talk about the acts. What What are the acts? So the So the acts are the, the you know what does what does God do in the world? You know, I mean, what is you know God? You know, Wasati's not going to deny that there are things like uh, tables and chairs and or whatever. Maybe the, you know the tables and and rugs let's say he's not going to he's not going to uh to deny that the things in the world exist or that human beings exist and and so uh these are the the uh the effects of god's creation in the world of the created things and how they interact with one another uh and and how those and how those created things interact with god but the the purpose of the acts is for the acts to come and understand that the only actor is god so what happens is is that human beings 
uh, begin to believe that these things are all distinct from God, that somehow maybe even perhaps that they are the creator of their own actions, that they see themselves as as distinct, discrete human beings who uh, who are in fact in charge of themselves and are free to make decisions and uh, and act in the world in such a way and have that 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 they can uh, cause. Uh, that they can, they can, they are, they are causes of effects in the world. They act on something and, and there's a, and, and there's a response, um, that this is, this isn't, this is an error for Wasati. So, so the acts are those things in the world, but for Wasati's position, he wants to talk about the acts in such a way that you should see all those acts ultimately leading back to realize that the acts are nothing but God that the acts are nothing but God's expression in the world, just in the same way the, the names are nothing but God's ultimate expression, the acts are nothing but God's ultimate expression. And so, and so when, when looking at the world, one should always be drawn back to, to God's transcendence. What do you think Wasati would say? Obviously, he he's, seems to be positing that we have, we have no agency. Maybe I'm misreading this and you can clarify, but... Uh... If we if we don't have any agency, why should people act ethically and morally? Right, right. Well, you know, I mean, in part he he answers this, uh, and in part he doesn't. So, uh, well, I think he answers it satisfactorily for himself. I'm not sure if he answers it satisfactorily for others, but um, in part, what he's saying about that is that people do have agency. Okay, so they do have a sort of an agency. Uh, but the the agency that people have is in recognizing that they have no agency. So when human so human beings are are part of what you know what it means to be made in the image of of, of God is to have the 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 attributes God's divine attributes uh, in oneself as as character traits, right? So human beings have have the attributes within them as character traits. But the but the purpose of having these character traits is again for one to understand that these character traits are ultimately God's character traits and they're and they're not your own. So that when you're uh that when you're acting in the world, you should realize that you are not acting, but that that God is in fact acting. And he talks about this in a in a in a in a really interesting way. He says that, you know, that God's attributes stand through the creature, you know, that they that they flow through the creature. So that the a person uh a person may be acting compassionately towards another person. You see somebody so, who's hungry and, you, and you're feeding them and, and you think that you're the person who's, who's feeding them, but it's really God feeding them. And he talks about it in such a way that that, that attribute of compassion uh, is, is God's attribute of compassion standing up in you flowing through you that there is in fact nothing of you there other than this uh, other than God's choice to have you in in quotation marks uh be the be the uh the uh the intermediary of 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 God's compassion at that moment and that one has to understand oneself as an intermediary cause and not as a as a, as a primary cause, and one has to follow the causes back, uh, back to God. So one has agency in the sense that one of the divine names that that one has is is divine independence, is divine independence. So one has agency in the sense that that you do in fact experience yourself as independent from God because of this name, but that that name of independence also requires that you give it up. 
uh, that you give the independence up, that you have the independence to 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 return to return that independence to its to its proper place uh, to its proper place in in God. And so, divine agency is all. I mean, so our human agency is all about giving up agency to to the divine. And so. Human actions, your your actions about whether or not your you, you know your actions have some kind of of force in the world. They have uh, they have force if you realize that they don't belong to you. If you believe that your that your actions and your thinking and everything about who you are it belongs to you in some way, then they're completely empty and they take part in nothingness and they have no effect on anything. And and yes, maybe the poor person gets fed, but there's but there's nothing to that. Uh, there's nothing to that. It ha- it would have no effect on your final abode. It would uh, it has no uh, it has no effect in the in 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 the ultimate reality of things. But if one were to were to understand uh, that that all of that completely and utterly belongs to God, then that action would would have uh, would have meaning and would have an effect, and and wouldn't and would stand for you uh, on the on the last day. Although, you know, at the same time, too, you know, Wasati says, you know, it's really, it's, it's, you know, people sort of, you know, you can see people getting upset. Well, it's like, well, why, why bother doing good deeds, right? If, 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 if none of it matters, but Wasati says, hey, you know, it's, it's actually, God's being quite merciful. God's, it's God's extraordinary generosity that God does not judge us by our deeds. I mean, I mean, you know, and think about it, think about it like this, really. I mean, it's just an enormity of arrogance to think that, you know, that, that some little good deed that you've done in, in some way, uh, qualifies you as a, you know, as some kind of fantastically wonderful person who deserves the greatest reward ever known. Right. I mean, he would, he would look at it, at it like that. Like what, what makes you think that, that these, you know, oh, you fed a poor person. That's so sweet. You know, that somehow now you are do something from that. Right. And so, you know, there's this, it's, it's very typical, right. Of, of, of people to talk about, uh, you know, Muhammad's example and in the, in the, in a, a way of like, you know, you're supposed to, be charitable in such a way that you're not attributing it to yourself. And so really what Wasati is saying is, is, you know, he's really just, he's really just saying that, but on a, uh, uh, but, but on a deeper, on a, on a deeper, he's taking it to its deepest level. Let's, let's put it that way. Uh, that, that one has to realize that, that, that all of that goodness ultimately, ultimately comes from God. And so, you know, you wouldn't want to have to go on the last day and and have and have your works uh, be the judge of you and where you end up. You know, you you should really just be you know be very very happy. You're going to be going before a, a, a merciful and generous God who's you know who can who who can forgive you despite the fact that you've been woefully uh, incomplete in in how you fed the poor. Well, Lori, we've taken up a lot of your time. We appreciate you you chatting with us. Um, but before I let you go, um, could you tell us kind of what, what you're working on now, what projects you're doing? Yeah, I'm, I'm really, oh gosh, I'm having so much fun. And this is, you know, this is partly why, you know, you can't always remember what you wrote before because you're in the middle of something else now, right? You know, your head's so in what you're doing now. I'm writing a book on, on early pious and Sufi women, mainly coming from, uh, Ibn al-Jazi's, uh, uh, Sifat al-Safwa, uh, and, uh, and, and Sulami's, uh, and Sulami's collection of biographies of, of, of early Sufi women. And I'm, and I'm looking at these, at these biographies in their, uh, you know, in their, in their, 
historical contexts and their social contexts. I'm talking about the, you know, the, the construction of the biographies themselves in their, in their social context, but also seeing what we can, what we can retrieve about these women's lives and what women's lives were like at the time. Um, I've published an article that comes, that comes from part of the book uh, called God Loves Me. That's talking about uh, the language of love that, that some of the women use in sort of the theological context of these, of these statements, because they were speaking in, in keeping with the with the theological trends of their time and, and trying to talk about uh, uh, also too about about popular and elite theologies and the relationship between that and the the kind of role that that uh, that charismatics uh, uh, played in in the early period in the development of of theology so I'm trying to sort of talk in, in that sense and uh, and I'm writing up another section of the book for an article right now sort of talking about how uh, Sufi sources tend to uh, uh, portray women, uh, they tend to idealize women as, uh, as secluded, uh, as women who sort of would retreat to not just to their home for worship, uh, but that who would retreat to a, a room inside their home to worship. And, and you know, as a, as, a, as a saying about one, as a biography woman says, you know, she never left this room for 30 years, except for the fact when you do a bit of research, you can in fact see that she, she did leave her room, uh, you know, quite a bit during those 30 years. And she was in fact speaking to people and she was teaching and she was interacting with the world around her and had, you know, and had concerns that were daily life concerns. So, you know, I'm talking, so I'm trying in one point to, to retrieve a bit about what her life might have been like. Uh, so it's a bit of a social history in that respect, but then also too talking about how the, uh, you know, how the biographical literature uh, builds up these uh these uh pictures of what these women's lives were like and 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 you know and and trying to give a more a more critical uh, a critical look at the biographical material and its and its presentation of piety that sounds great it's definitely a, a a field that we need more information on so thank you for yeah, your efforts yeah thank you very much i really enjoyed talking to you yeah thanks again Lori. we really appreciate it and uh yeah hopefully once once that research comes out you can talk to us again i hope so Okay, thanks a lot. Thanks, Christian. Thanks again to Lori Silvers for joining us to talk about her new book, A Soaring Minaret, Abu Bakr al-Wasati and the Rise of Baghdadi Sufism. Quite enjoyable book. I highly recommend it.